Welcome, everyone, to the Inside the Journey podcast. This is episode number five for Sunday, June 2nd, 2003. I'm Nelson DeWitt. I'm John Younger. And we are the creative masterminds behind the documentary film Identifying Nelson Buscando a Roberto. This week, we have an extra special guest. But before I introduce her, I just want to say we are now in iTunes. So if you go to iTunes and search for Inside the Journey podcast, you'll be able to find us and subscribe. That's probably the best way to get the episodes as soon as they come out. Now, on to our guest. She is not just my mom, but she is also the author of Missing Mila, Finding Family, an international adoption in the shadow of the Salvadoran Civil War. She is a professor of German emerita who taught at Wellesley College from 1971 to 2010. I am very pleased to introduce the one and only Margaret Ward. Thank you. (laughs) It's really nice to be here. (laughs) Glad you could make it. John, do you want to tell us what we're talking about? Um, I guess I wanted to start by saying welcome and also saying congratulations. I know that with Memorial Day, there's a lot of um, historic or or significant uh, dates and anniversaries. So I just wanted to maybe have you share some of those with us. Well, thank you, John. And yes, you're right. Um, May 30th, 1983 was uh, Memorial Day weekend and... My husband Tom and I were in Tegucigalpa, Honduras, and that was the first day that we held Nelson, our son, in our arms in the orphanage where we, he was eventually on that same day released to our custody. And two years later, to the day, our son Derek was born. So it's, you know, a very special date in our family life. It's both uh, an adoption day and then the birthday of Nelson's younger brother. I thought a good place to start would be to talk about our time last year in Chicago. And we talked about this in episode number three of the podcast. So if if you're unfamiliar with what we're talking about, you can go back and listen to it. But in uh, this time last year, we were the three of us, John, myself, and, and my mom were all in Chicago. And we were presenting at the... Robert Kirshner Human Rights Memorial Lecture. And uh, John and I shared our thoughts about that event. So I, th- I think a great place to start would be if, uh, Mom, you could tell us about your experience during that, that week. Yeah, sure. Uh, indeed, it was, it was May 30th and, and just exactly the same time of year. And <laughs> it meant a lot to us. Derek was also there. We celebrated his birthday, and and we were the three of us were able to present at this this wonderful occasion. Um, I noticed because I did listen to your earlier broadcasts that you kept referencing the book, and I thought, well, some of the people who are listening will be aware of my book, but some won't be. And the film and the book are two separate projects, and uh, it might be important for for that to get sorted out in, in one of these. So I thank you for inviting me to, to talk. Um, on, on that occasion, I thought one of the things that was wonderful, because I've done a lot of presentations where I've read from the book or talked about my book, um, was that in Chicago, for the first time, Nelson and John had the first eight minutes of the film in a finished form. 
that that you could present before I talked or read from the book. And it did such a wonderful job of presenting the the family narrative uh, in a in almost like a capsule, which is just a different form because you have visuals in a way that you don't have when you're in a book dealing with the word primarily. And it, it just captured things so well so that then we could think about what it all means. And so for me, that particular presentation was like a turning point that I wasn't just on my own and that what you are doing and what I had done and had published you know, there was a synergy with the two things working together, even though they, they're they very different in, as, in terms of genre and in terms of content, in fact. So it was very exciting for me for that reason, that, that it was this dual presentation with all of the power of the, of the visuals and of what films can do. Yeah, and so much of the task of a film is to condense things as much as possible. Um, whereas with a book, you get to go more in depth and 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 give details, and so it's it's nice to hear because it, um, it it means that all of a sudden people have a little context for the details that you can share with them. I thought about this just the other day because I I had a reading over in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, here, and um, you were not there, and you know it's it's like I have to work a lot harder to get an audience that's not familiar with the book, which has a pretty complicated shape and structure and a lot of detail, as you said, to get them to a place where they can understand some of the the chapters that go beyond the family story into the history of the Salvadoran Civil War or go into the issue of the disappeared children. And I have to spend a lot more time first telling the family story, whereas the beginning of the film can do that in, in such a, a tight way that, you know, it's great when we're able to do some of these presentations together. So for our audience who might not be familiar with the book, as you point out, why don't you tell us a little bit about what the book is okay. and maybe give us an overview without going into all those details <laughs> no, of, of, of what's inside the book and what people can expect. Okay. Nelson mentioned the title, Missing Mila, Finding Family, and I think that that helps me kind of explain it. Mila is the nickname that the family gave his birth mother, Ana Milagro, and she's the voice who goes missing, who is killed in a shootout, and that is the episode that, that orphaned our son, unbeknownst to us until many years later. And she's also the person that, as a, a an adopted child, he really missed, although he didn't talk about that very much, but it came to the fore much later on. And, and so she's the missing person, the missing piece, someone I try in the book to give a voice to, but it's also the person that he most missed. And the second part of the title, Finding Family, being adopted by us, he finds family as a young child. But then in 1997, when out of the blue, through the auspices of various organizations and the work of someone like Dr. Kirchner, we find another whole family. So he finds family with us, and we find family 
in this expanded experience we have of being reunited with members of his biological family, and that continues to the present day. So, you know, it opened a whole new vista in our family life. So that, that I think both parts of the title kind of explain that the book goes beyond just the narrow, the narrow details of our adoption and his being found by his maternal grandmother and meeting his family again. It, it, it suggests that there's, there's more meaning in there. So the, that's what the, really the book is about. It's a, both about what goes missing and why and what can be found out of such a situation that's born in a, a period of chaos and civil war. One of the things that I really wanted to ask you about is um, what made you decide to to, re- to begin the book. And in terms of the researching and visiting family and discussing stories that took years to really unfold and, and get translated to you, um, what was that process like for you? I'm glad you used the word process because this really was. For a good number of years, uh, Tom and I, my husband and I, talked about writing a book about Nelson's story. But we weren't really in a position to do that because there were there were lots of still murky parts and things that were unknown. We were getting to know the family. Um, I also was working full time, and I was a professional in German studies. This wasn't my field, as it were. So only as I began to approach retirement and my last sabbatical did I have the kind of time to think through how I might put this together, and. Only when I started in 2004 to really get serious about doing this, doing it, I thought, primarily for the family, as I got started, I realized that I I needed to go deeper. I needed to read a lot more um, books about the Civil War. I needed to interview members of the family. I needed to really pursue this in, in the way you would, not exactly as an academic, not exactly as a Um, an investigative journalist, but as a family member interested in trying to probe to get get the story more fully and place it in a larger historical picture. And so it opened up a whole process for me of learning. So I read a lot. I talked with a lot of people. I went down to Central America in 2004, 2005 as part of my sabbatical, supported by my the college I had worked at, um, Wellesley College, uh, supported me, even though I was working on this personal project and not something in German studies. They supported me. I went down there and I did research in, in newspaper archives and with members of the family. I collected documents from them, things that we hadn't seen before. And then each summer, for a number of summers, I, was, I started writing. So it was a real, it was a real process for me. And that the shape of the book and the idea that this book would be appeal to a general public only came as part of the process. As I started writing, I realized this was something much bigger than just our story for us, you know, clarifying Nelson's story for us and for his family. One thing I think um, that is is a little foreign to a North American audience is is why the story would be murky and hard to get out. That's actually a very good question, and it makes me think, John, um, about, all right, what's happening in Syria today, okay? 
we, we hear, we, we do get reports, but do we have much understanding of what's going on among the various rebel groups in Syria today as they're fighting this civil war? No, and it's going to take a long time historically before we have enough information to be able to begin to comprehend what's going on, particularly, I think, in civil wars and in revolutionary situations. You have groups, there are very often internal conflicts in those groups. Sorting that out from the outside, uh, particularly, I think, sometimes from the perspective of an American audience, it, it really takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of groundwork by people who are specialists. I mean, I certainly depended upon the work of people who are special specialists in the history of Central America and Latin America, um, from whom I learned a lot. But they also were looking after the fact, after the Truth Commission reports come out, after the after the war is over, the historians can begin to study it, and you begin to grasp. And yet still, there's a lot that's unknown and that you may never be able to sort out. Uh, many of these kinds of things happen with a good bit of clandestine operations where revolutionaries work with pseudonyms. They are not they do not know the true identity of the other people who are working in groups with them, and it's it's difficult to sort out. It's still dangerous, I think, to reveal some of... One of the things I, I felt when I visited was that some people... Um, it's still close to that war, and and people are still alive that participated in things, and I I, I, I felt like, you know, it's still... People are scared still to, to talk too much, or it's not just that it's painful, and it certainly is, but but uh, it's it's in there's something in the air still. Was there anything that surprised you about the research or, or through working through that process? Was it harder than you thought? Did you find things that you weren't expecting? I mean, you know. I think what happened was that as my understanding of through the reading of works by as I said historians, people who are specialists. As my understanding grew, I was in a better position to ask questions of members of the family, and things came out in those conversations that were new, in a, new pieces of the, of the family story, of how they had experienced it. You know, they felt more comfortable perhaps sharing with me because they, they you know, we were a little bit more on the same page. That's sort of responding to what you've just said, John, that that we look at this from North America, you know, certainly much more from a distance. And for them, it's still palpable. And people who were involved at the time, one need only mention the, the now vice president of El Salvador is one of the old guard revolutionaries who was in the same group that Nelson's uh, birth father was in. And, and so these people, many of them are still there. They're still even political players it just feels different. But I think I found out more about the family story because I had a deeper appreciation of the of the background. You know, that I could approach them. Maybe it was just my own confidence in knowing what questions to ask or you know, things came out that surprised me. I think they're also very trusting of you. And I don't know if it has to do with the fact that you 
raised me and and I am a member of their family as well. I, I don't know if that dynamic's at play, but one of the things that I've sensed is that many members of my birth family in El Salvador in Central America seem to really trust you and Tom. And I'm not sure why that is, but I'm I'm wondering do do you sense that as well? Yes, and to me it's one of the added blessings, one of the added miracles of all of this. I mean, there have been lots of little things that have happened, including Nelson, as I started working on this project, and I interviewed him and his sister Ava when I was approaching the chapter where I was going to to probe more deeply his birth mother's motivations and try to think her through, um, give her a voice in some way. The two of them opened up for, I wouldn't say the first time, but Ava in particular. It was like pouring out and trusting me with her thoughts and feelings, and then you started writing this blog. You know, that was this little miracle. Here's my son became a writer, okay? And I felt the same, I feel the same way about some of the conversations I was able to have, particularly in 2004, 2005, with his grandmother, um, who told me about, you know, the death of her father, things that we had not heard before. Now, we met the family in 1997. This was now already 2005, and new stories were coming out. So, yeah, there was, some, there was sort of a level of trust, but I felt that from the beginning, in 1997 already, that there was gratitude to us for having raised you and protected you, and for our being willing to have uh, this open situation with them. And I don't know that we deserved it, but I felt from the beginning there was a lot of sort of sense of trusting us. So that by the time I came to write the book, there really wasn't any issue around should I use pseudonyms instead of naming everyone by name. I mean, you know, my book names people by names. And I was sensitive to the fact, well, this isn't really all over for people. Are there, are there going to be, am I endangering anybody by, you know, using their name? Um, but people seemed to feel trusting. They knew I was writing a book, and they were willing to talk to me about their feelings and their experiences. And I, I want to back up for just mm-hmm. a second, because you mentioned uh, Mama Chila, who is someone that we talk about in the film as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was my grandmother on my maternal side, and she passed away just recently, a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And she is someone that I think had an influence on you as well. I, I know in the book especially, you mentioned the part where we... Uh, where we are coming home to Boston after meeting my birth family and Mama Chila writes this letter to Derek, who is uh, your son, my brother, kind of setting the tone mm-hmm. for the relationship. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I, I, I do use this in the epilogue uh, in the book. I also dedicated the book to Mama Chila. Um, and... Yeah, she, the very first thing she did after this week that we had spent together in reunion was to write a letter to Derek, and it begins, My Dear Grandson. 
you know, he was 12 years old and very vulnerable and worrying about losing Nelson to this other family. But when she wrote this, it, you, you could tell this wasn't calculated. This was just, this was the way she felt about things. She wasn't, for her, there was no difference. She said, my dear grandson, we understand that your parents are going to allow Nelson to come down again next summer by himself to visit us. We want you to know that we would love to have you come with him, you know, that you're, you're not any different in our minds and hearts than, than he is. You know, it wasn't sort of like, oh, we have this, I have my grandchild back. It's, oh, I have, I have another one besides. And I feel that enabled me over time because that, of that tone that she set and my realization of what that meant to kind of say, yeah, Ava's my daughter. I remember that it may, means a lot to Ava, too, the first time I you know, stood up and said, I'd like to introduce my daughter, yeah. Ava. That, that was right here in Harrisburg. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, Mama Chila was a very, very special person. She raised Ava and Ernesto, Toto, your brother and sister, got them out of El Salvador at a time that was very dangerous for families of revolutionaries, and basically, you know, raised them. And Ava has always said, you know, she was my mother and my father. And now she says to, to us, you're my mother and father. She was incredibly courageous. And I, I remember one story about... Uh, how while the war was still going on, she um, met with the president of Honduras, who um, probably you know politically was you know was somebody that would be very threatening to her, um, and and asked some hard questions about where where her daughter was and where her grandson was during the war. And I thought that was the sign of somebody who was really brave. She was, and she she had a lot of reasons to be the kind of person who might have just been bitter about her losses. She had lost her only son to a firearm accident when he was 16. She lost this uh, youngest of her daughters and this grandson. And yet she was a very, you know, she was very determined. She, she did what was necessary to raise a lot of kids. Um, and... She she was brave. I think she, I think you're absolutely right, John. She was a very also a very brave person. She was willing to, you know, to ask the hard questions and to pursue her her goal to find, you know, to find the missing child, um, in a manner that her daughters had said to me. You know, we tried to discourage her. You know, we thought she was crazy. She you know, she was maybe putting herself in danger, but. Um, they realized that she wasn't ever going to give up. You know, she was going to do this. There's, there's also a picture in the film, which we sort of discovered the context to more recently, where they're asking, they, you know, there's the story of how she went to the FMLN after the war and started asking hard questions. And we discovered the person she's facing down in that picture, and she looks very serious, um, is, is like one of the top security people in the FMLN. Um, and even to this day, I mean, he, I, he worked for the president until maybe a year ago. 
um, and she's got this stare. She's she's staring daggers into him, you know, to answer her question. This is the one where he's actually holding that little ID photo of Mila Mm -hmm. and telling her, no, he doesn't know anything about her, you know. And, and we certainly do know people who who said yes. He 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 must have known who she was. All right, you know. But Mama was also fortunate that she was put in touch with non-governmental and non-political organizations, like the the various human rights organizations, both in. El Salvador and in Honduras, and then eventually with Probusqueda, which is specifically hunting for children who went missing during this conflict. And though, because I think to be an individual, and no matter how much you really want to, it's very difficult to do this kind of thing. And so we have to be very grateful to all the organizations who were involved. And then, of course, Physicians for Human Rights in this country, um, who you know, made the connections, did the investigations, and got us even started on a path to find out more. Um, Because we realized, and I certainly realized in the process of writing the book, that the original investigative report that we were presented with wasn't the full picture, that they didn't get it all. And that, indeed, there will be things that probably we'll never figure out. But I almost think that doesn't matter. Maybe it does, but I don't know. Sometimes I think it it doesn't entirely matter that we know absolutely everything that happened. Well, and you certainly know more than than anybody ever expected you to as well. Well, that's true. (laughs) So do you want to talk a little bit about what's happened since the book has come out? Because you mentioned Mm -hmm. that you had this event last night and we had an event last year at Chicago. Right. Why don't you give us an idea about, well, one, when the book came out, and then two, what has happened since then? Yeah, Yeah, I should say uh, that when I wrote the book at at the beginning, I thought, oh, this is just for for me, for us to get it sort of all down so that members of the family can understand the story later on, you know, the next generation. But it became clear as I had, as when you're writing a book, you have lots of people read it in drafts. People kept saying, this is such a fascinating story, and look at what you're doing, and you need to publish this. It's, it's got to be... And Nelson was always saying, oh, get it done, Mom, and self-publish and get it out there. And then I'd have other people say, you know, Margaret, you try to get it out in a trade press, get an agent, and you go through all of these things. Eventually, I was able to place it with a university press, the University of Texas Press. They were interested in it because they do a lot of publication in Latin American studies, and they do do memoirs, and they do, they're interested in women's studies. They're, it was kind of a niche that, that fit their, their, what they call their list. But they understood that the book would be also for a general audience, that it wasn't a, um, a real, it wasn't an academic style of a book. And it came out pretty quickly once they, I had a contract with them. Within a year, I mean, there was another editing process. It was actually published in November 2011. And right away, I started with some events of readings and, and, and things at, at universities and colleges for courses in sociology uh, or women's studies or Latin American studies. But I, I think the very first invitation I had was from a Rotary Club here in New Hampshire that has an ongoing project in El Salvador. 
and it it got written up in the local paper and somebody read that and called me and said could you come and talk to the club and I said sure so over this period of almost two years I've been at universities independent bookstores um at clubs, uh, service clubs, not just the Rotary Club, but other clubs. Um, a good many book groups have read the book, and I've even done discussions with them on Skype. There was one group in, out in Colorado that I Skyped with when, after they had their book club had read it. Those are often, you know, one person I know in the group or a person who knows a person I know, you know, who passed the book on and said, you should read this. Um... And eventually it was done in electronic form, so it is available uh, both um, as a, I'm, I'm losing it, tell me what kind of... The, as, a, as a Kindle? Yes, it's available on Kindle or uh, Google, Books. Google Books in several different electronic forms, which I think is really neat because, first of all, it's the cheapest version, but... You, you can click on, if you're really interested in, whether it's some of the issues around international adoption or issues around the American politics of the time period that had an influence on our unusual adoption or things having to do with the Civil War, there are notes. And most people who are going to read this, they read it for the narrative line. They're not going to go back to the notes. But if you're reading it electronically, you can click on that little number. It takes you back to the notes. And then if you see, ah, Margaret has provided a link, you click and you're right out on the Internet and it takes you to the information with the statistics about the numbers of international adoptees from certain countries. Or it takes you to the... Um, the files on John Negroponte um, that have been released because of Freedom of Information Act. And so, you know, you can get to, or it takes you to the Truth Commission report. So if you're interested in a specific thing in the book, you don't have to work as hard to to go to that that source of information. So I think those electronic versions are very nice. They didn't come out right away, but by last June, the... the um, the Kindle version was out, and the it's out in both the library edition and then a paperback, and the paperback sold out, and the press decided to choose my title uh, as one of the very first ones for a print-on-demand program, which means that it will continue to be able to be, it won't just end on rema- remainder tables, it will be available sort of forever. If, if a a course in Latin American studies wants to use it three years from now. They'll the, print it. They'll print the 20 copies they want for that course. So that makes me happy. Yeah. Yeah. It has a future life. <laughs> Depending upon whether the group is a group that has read the book, people who've read the book will be full of, of very precise questions about about details, including the historical material, even though they found it difficult, I will have people who will say, I had no idea that our government was doing this. I mean, how could I consider myself a fairly well-educated person, but how could I have been so out of it not to have known more about what was going on in Central America in in these years? Um, they're, They're shocked by some of the stories of the disappeared children um, they feel and 
I went to a few groups where I was sort of shaking in my shoes and thought, oh, they're going to be very right-wing and they're going to be uh, not very receptive. And they had a lot of, you know, they were really quite open to talking about this and wanting to know more and so forth. So that's been quite interesting. Let me just continue for a bit because this past uh, weekend when I did the reading in Portsmouth, it drew mostly people who had not read the book. There were one or two who had read the book, but most of them had not. And it was such a diverse audience that questions and the interests were coming from all kinds of perspectives. There was someone there who works with adoptive children who have um, difficulty bonding with their parents and you know have real psychological problems. And he works with these kids all the time. And he and his wife were there. She's also a psychiatric nurse, and, it, you know, that that was very interesting. I went around and actually, it was a small audience, maybe 20, I went around and asked them sort of, who are you and why are you here? <laughs> there was a filmmaker, okay, who's worked on documentary film, um, spent time in Basra, and, you know, I'll tell you more about him personally, not, I won't go into the great detail. There was someone from the communications department at the University of New Hampshire. There was uh, someone from philosophy, someone from education, someone, you know, they were kind of coming. There was obviously a former activist who was very interested in the, in the political aspects of the story and, and the chapter that for many people is just too difficult. He wanted, he hadn't read it yet, but he wanted to know more. He was already looking at my index to see, you know, what names were in there. So, and people can come to this book and I'm sure they will come also to and from the film from many different points of view. They may be interested in adoptive issues. They may be interested in international uh issues, either these or other similar ones. Um, They may be interested in psychology and psychological aspects of such a story. Um, So, yeah, that amazed me that in one little group there would be so, so many different kind of places that they were coming from. One man who works in communications was particularly interested in how do we report you know, how do we, what sorts of information, now the world has changed, we have the internet, we have all this um, tweeting and so forth, we're getting, we, it isn't like the 1980s, but still, we have very imperfect ideas about what's going on in areas of conflict, it seems to me. And he was very interested in that, you know, reflective part of thinking about. That's where he started from, but by the time the conversation was ending and the bookstore wanted to close for the night and people were willing to just go on talking, he was asking me questions about how the boys reacted when, you know, the information, I mean, he was back to sort of the personal stuff and wanting to know, well, how did you experience that, which I thought was really interesting. You know, he came in with a certain point of view and an interest that he'd picked up on the posters and thought, okay, this would be interesting. And he ended up being really interested in some of the personal stuff. So, yeah, long answer. (laughs) One of the things that I find is that a lot of... is that people connect with the story very differently, and they connect to different parts of the story. Mm -hmm. So as I talk to people and as I tell them the story they'll stop me and they'll ask about a certain part, mm-hmm. whether it's about my grandmother, or about the war, or mm-hmm. about the adoption. And everyone 
has their own take on right. what the story means to them. I have to say, this particular experience, maybe it was because it was a rainy night and it was Memorial Day weekend, but I had a lot of people in tears by the end. You know, maybe therapeutic tears, I hope. I mean, I didn't sort of stop and say, can we do anything for you? But we had one man who was just sobbing, and, and, and I don't know what the backstory is, whether he is an adoptive child himself or there's something in his own family. But it got to be a very emotional evening, but I found even the tears were sort of a positive thing for the people who were there. And I think Nelson's right. People obviously bring their own personal thing to it and they because the story is so multi-layered they often come from vastly different places to it and are able to kind of get a hook into it but my hope is that both the book and in a different way the film can function to maybe open up a different place for them they may be coming to it because They've adopted a child from Vietnam, okay, and they're interested in international adoption issues. But they may be enlightened about uh, the, the civil war in, in El Salvador and our, our government's role in it. I mean, you know, they may find something that they didn't expect to find. So that, that it isn't that, that it wouldn't speak to, their, to the thing that they're particularly concerned about, but that it might take them in a new direction. So that's always my hope, that, that your readers or your viewers will, will learn something the way I learned something by writing the book. And I know you're learning a lot by working on the film. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a, a good place to end it for today's episode. Uh, make sure that you check out the book. It's available on Amazon, and uh, actually, if you the best way to get it is if you go to missingmila.com. It has links to where you can buy it on Amazon and Google and, and, and at the... And also directly from the press, which gives you an automatic discount if that is... Particularly if you're a group, that can be a worthwhile way of doing it. All the links from today's show will be in the show notes. Make sure you check out the enhanced version of the podcast because those images and links pop right up while you're listening. The best way to get the podcast is to subscribe via iTunes. Just search for Inside the Journey in the podcast section and that'll pop right up. You can join our mailing list and be notified of when the newest episodes are out and when we have something newsworthy to tell you. We'd absolutely love to hear from you. We want your feedback. We want to know what you think. And if you don't send us something, John is going to start to beg. So far, Margaret has sent us our only comments. So thank you, Margaret, and we hope more people join you. (laughs) You can leave us a comment at uh, our Facebook page, which is Facebook slash Identifying Nelson. Or if you have something a little more personal to say, you can always email email us, podcast at identifyingnelson.com. If you enjoy the show, please share it with anyone you think would enjoy it. That's the way that we get the word out there, and that helps us tremendously. Make sure you tune in next week as we continue our discussion with Margaret Ward. We'll be diving into some of the history of El Salvador and what happened during the during that conflict. And, and how that may be very relevant today. Yes. So, I'm Nelson DeWitt. John Younger, and... Cue the music. 
busca de un mejor destino para ti lo que viniera de ti.